I'm Jewish. I'm so Jewish. I'm Jewish. I'm Jewish. A lot of people say, I'm Jewish, I'm proud of being Jewish. First thing I ask them is, why? I'm Jewish. Make something of it. Welcome to Why Judaism, the audiophiles. We are now into our fourth interview. It's with a very prominent Orthodox rabbi in Los Angeles, Rabbi Yitzchak Adlerstein. And we begin, like always, with name, age, and occupation. Yitzchak Adlerstein, uh, over 21. <laughs> uh, I direct the Project Next Step an educational outreach program for the Simon Wiesenthal Center here in Los Angeles. And I'm the Sidney M. Ermis Chair in Jewish Law and Ethics at Loyola Law School, Los Angeles. Well, in the last couple of decades, uh, better secular law schools have added uh, curricula in comparative law. So many of the top 40 schools have uh, programs of, uh, of Jewish Jewish law, offerings in Jewish law. I give two different courses at Loyola, one in the spring and one in the, uh, one in the fall. An introduction to Jewish law, contemporary issues in Jewish law, in the context of the, the curriculum of uh, conventional Western law school. Yeah, the best part of it is that what I'm really teaching is traditional rabbinic thought and law to students who otherwise have never had an opportunity to study anything Jewish. And the person paying me to do this is the Pope. I'd heard that Loyola was connected to the Catholic Church and specifically Jesuits. What are Jesuits? Now, th there were different orders in, in Catholicism uh, for hundreds of years. The Jesuits traditionally were the, were the academic intellectual types. They were the ones who trained all of the people who brought down the church in the 18th century were products of their excellent schooling. Uh, Voltaire, who used to sign his, uh, his letters, écraser l'enfant, or down with the infamy, meaning the church, nonetheless looked back even in his old age with kindness to his uh, Jesuit teachers. So they're still into uh, open-mindedness and uh, intellectual inquiry and uh, Loyola is a good school. We switch now to Rabbi Adlerstein's upbringing and his background. So I grew up in uh, Manhattan, all the way uh, upper Manhattan. Um, my parents are, are part of that uh, generation that some of us call the lost generation. They grew up uh, in those decades between the war when Jewish life was... Uh, a great sense of uh, chaos. All the communities that had survived for hundreds and hundreds of years in Europe were disrupted in World War I. People don't realize that, in a sense, World War I was even more disruptive of Jewish life than World War II. I mean, the Holocaust, of course, uh, killed uh, six million Jews. But in terms of the structure of Jewish life, World War I really delivered the death knell. So many people wound up in communities far from where their family roots had been for hundreds of years. And they moved around from place to place. Uh, so my father of blessed memory uh, 
grew up in Switzerland and Italy somewhat, even though his roots were Eastern European. His father was quite adept at studying Talmud, but my father received zero formal Jewish education. So there were going to be, uh, of course, certain consequences in the children that they raised. So both myself and my sister initially were enrolled in public schools. And it was uh, just through some good divine providence that he got us out of there and got us into some Jewish schools at separate times so that both myself and my sister wound up returning really to the, to the kind of traditional Judaism that had been practiced in the family for hundreds of years before. So I grew up in, in, in Manhattan. Uh, like many of the other people in the neighborhood, uh, there was a closer conservative synagogue which was much more user-friendly than some kind of, you know, Eastern European shtibel, the small room kind of thing. So they, they gravitated there, and even though it was conservative in uh, denominationally, almost all of the people in, in, the, in the synagogue would have called themselves Orthodox. Uh, what happened to their children, I can't tell you. But I uh, was enrolled in their Talmud Torah and even registered when I graduated their Talmud Torah at uh, JTS's uh, program beyond Talmud Torah. And there, but for the grace of God, <laughs> would I have gone had, uh, had not uh, God arranged things a little differently and my parents finally found a home. Everybody was looking for homes back then and thank God it wasn't Levittown. We would have gone the way of everybody else in suburbia, but uh, in Kew Garden Hills, Queens. After moving to Kew Garden Hills, we sort of fell into one of the many Orthodox synagogues there, sort of a natural place to gravitate to. I wound up with a second set of friends. I had one set of friends uh, in public school by day, and then another set uh, afternoons or weekends. And gradually, I you know, sort of compared notes, and so did my parents. And after about two years, I wound up making the, uh, the shift to, uh, to a Jewish school. I had very little Jewish, I had Jewish education, but not textual education. I wasn't learning the things that kids who went to a Jewish day school for eight years were learning. So my choices were somewhat limited. But there was a marvelous school that sort of adopted people like me. They had a special, what they called a prep class virtually everybody who enrolled in that prep class eventually became rabbis. <laughs> so they had a good track record on that. So this brings up an interesting notion, whether or not the non-Orthodox had a positive influence on him and what his view of that is. My, my guess is that had I continued there, I would be a Jubu today or I would be entirely unaffiliated. Um, what, what I was trained as from the time that I was young was to think and to think critically. Um, I loved reading. My, uh, my father loved reading, taught us to, to read and to think. And uh, I became a little bit of a cynic at an, at an early age. If you couldn't make something make sense to me, I wasn't really going to have too much to do with it. Uh, one of the things that happened when I moved to Queens into a traditional neighborhood is that uh, a neighborhood rabbi sort of picked me up. Uh, I was 
technically uh, a part-time congregant of his, but he was gung-ho on taking the kids in the community and sitting them down during the summer months and making them study Talmud. Right, so most of these kids came from non-Orthodox backgrounds, and it was the last thing they, they wanted to do, but their parents made them do it because he was the rabbi. So I joined one of these classes, felt a little bit out of sorts because I was the only one without the yeshiva background, but I took to it. I, I took to it famously. I started loving doing Talmud. Uh, I believe to this day that had I started at an earlier age in a typical Jewish school, I would have rebelled and walked out. But because I came from the other side and I was able to appreciate what I didn't have and was able to do it on my own terms, I, I became as addicted to studying Talmud as a, as a heroin addict needs his daily fix. I am a different person on those days where I just don't do Talmud for a minimum amount of time the way I should. I can be, I don't know what your wife says to you when you come home before, you're, before you've eaten. My wife usually sends frantic signals to all the kids, don't talk to Abba until he's fed. You know? I, I can be the same way if I don't, if I don't get my injection of, of authentic Jewish spirituality. And authentic Jewish spirituality is none of the stuff that you're going to get from uh, Madonna et al. It's, it's not the kind of thing you can get by putting a, a red string around your wrist or closing your eyes and, uh, and saying Om in Yiddish. It's, it's work. There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of, uh, of, of brain work involved besides the heart. But uh, once, once you get the steps, it's, there's, there's, not, there's nothing like it. I'm, I'm not a prophet, especially looking backwards, but I believe about myself that had I gone to conventional schools because I was a rebellious kid, I would have, I would have walked out. Now, maybe I would have returned 20 years later, but I, I think I would have had little patience for the conventional uh, curriculum because I started later and I was able to do it on my own terms and I had to think things through rather than you know, have them sort of uh, handed to me I was able to appreciate it in different ways. Now, my kids are entirely different. My kids were brought up with a very traditional right of center orthodox upbringing, and thank God they all took to it. I'm wondering about his children now. How many does he have, and where are they holding? Well, what I, I usually say, my wife has eight. I have very little to do with them. She's the uh, tzaddikas, the righteous one, who's <laughs> been responsible for... Uh, all of the good things that, uh, that, uh, that they've received. Uh, we have eight altogether, and they're a motley crew. They uh, start from age 29. Uh, Dovi, my, uh, my firstborn, who's uh, an attorney here in, in town. Uh, next in line is my daughter, uh, Chevy, who made Aliyah literally the day after her wedding. It's been living in Israel ever since, with, now has uh, three kids. Uh, after that is, uh, is Yehuda, who's finishing up his last year at uh, UCLA Law School. We may have up to three or four attorneys in the making in the, in the family. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, uh, very f I think I only have one child so far who graduated high school. Uh, that includes the, uh, the two sons who, who are either practicing attorneys or heading for the, heading for the bar. Uh, one of the 
one of the beautiful things about contemporary uh, American Jewish life is that professional schools have recognized the kind of training that one gets by full-time study in yeshiva as at least the equal of the kind of, of, of training that one gets in an undergraduate program. So you can get into a prestigious law school never having set foot in a college, which is what, what my kids did. Yehuda, Yehuda is a, an active member of the Federalist Society at UCLA, which shows you his political leanings. On the other hand, uh, the uh, two sons down, I'll get to him in a, in a couple of minutes. I have one son who used to be uh, about as left as you can get, including when he, when he lived in Israel, having Palestinian friends who he used to hang out with. Uh, so we, we have all kinds in the family. We, we, we had a pretty open and intellectual environment at home. After Yehuda is Pacey. Uh, Pacey is uh, uh, also married. So is my oldest son, Dovi. He also has three kids and lives in L.A. But Pacey is in a kolel in, in Philadelphia. I'm married now about two years. They have a beautiful baby girl. And uh, his wife is in a graduate program in speech therapy in, in Philadelphia. After that is uh, Yoni. We got married uh, yeah, about uh, six, seven months ago. Uh, met a girl in the office while I was doing graphic design in uh, Detroit. And uh, spending his first year after they got married in a kolel in, in Far Rockaway. His plans are probably, though, to uh, leave after that year and unless he can stretch the money and, and go back into, into full-time uh, full work. He runs a business on the side, and his wife works. And, but uh, it, it does a great deal for a marriage to spend the first year of marriage. It's a, a very tough time of adjustment. If you can spend that year within the context of something bigger than the two of you, if there's something that, that kind of molds what it is that you're trying to do in this marriage other than to bring people with uh, slightly conflicting chromosomes together. And the, the Kohl experience is really a beautiful experience in that regard. After Yoni, uh, we get to, to Ari, who uh, is in yeshiva in, in Baltimore, famous uh, near Israel yeshiva. And uh, he dabbles in his spare time working with Camp Simcha, which is a camp for children with life-threatening diseases. He just uh, spent his winter break. Uh, we thought he was coming home for about five days. Instead, he appeared for about 36 hours and then got on a plane back to Orlando with a couple of kids from L.A. who had been in this camp. And somebody had uh, arranged for a midwinter junket for, for all of these kids uh, who wound up speeding around uh, Disney World in Orlando in their wheelchairs. Um, so he is now studying for the LSATs and may make the third attorney in the, uh, the family. So he brought up the term kolel, and I asked him to explain that. Uh, the, the word kolel means inclusive. Uh, something that includes a person's needs. Uh, Kol today, for the most part, means a, an opportunity to study for a couple of years beyond the age that people 
typically study. So kids may go to a high school and then to a yeshiva for a couple of years post high school. When they get married, if they're suited for it, they'll be in a kolal, which essentially provides a stipend for them to be able to stretch their years of Torah study beyond where the, the time that people typically would, would, uh, would be able to, to study because of the familial obligation. Uh, kolel has become sort of de rigueur in America uh, and, in, and in Israel. Uh, part of the way in which the Orthodox community deals with modernity, with the negatives as well as the positives, is to kind of strengthen the person from the inside. And that requires more and more years of, of full-time immersion in, in, in study, in, in the study of Torah. Remember, uh, this is one religion where people study not to be able to figure out the right moves or to get the rules of the game. The, uh, the commandment to study, which uh, is, is promoted to the top position on the pedestal, often in Jewish thought, is study for its own sake, even if it has no direct connection to, uh, to activity. We see studying Torah as literally connecting with the mind of God. And in, in today's world, uh, we see more of a need for, for people and for families to have access to it. Uh, there are more opportunities uh, for higher education for, for women. And the Kolal experience is one uh, that, uh, to use a term not so popular in liberal portions of uh, Los Angeles, there is definitely a trickle-down effect to all members of a family and the community when there are people immersed in full-time Torah study. They're not working. They're, they're being... Paying for their, who's paying for their dwelling? Out of their kolal salary. Now, generally, well, there are very, very few kololim in the world that provide enough for people to live on. So generally, people have to hustle. They have to find other means at the same time. They'll dip into their wedding money. Their, their spouses may work. They may dabble in something on the, uh, on the side. Uh, Yoni, who's in a kolal in, in Far Rockaway, he is able to maintain a few hours a day his, uh, his graphic design uh, business. But the majority of people in Kolim don't like doing that because the experience is really felt best when you have no distractions. And the idea of kolal really is supposed to be providing you with the wherewithal that you can, you can have your head and your spirit involved in something full-time without the, without the distraction. Sort of like if you want to make it to the Olympics, you really have to push everything else in your life aside for a couple of years while you're going for it. That's the proper way of doing coal. We return to an earlier topic of whether the non-Orthodox world has value in his mind. Yeah, that's, a, that's a great question. Whether in the minds of Orthodox Jews or this Orthodox Jew, the heterodox movement, the non-Orthodox movements are seen as entirely, as entirely negative. Uh, I, I hate simple, simplistic answers to complex questions, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to hedge on that. My own experience, that's a couple of decades working in, in Jewish outreach, is that non-Orthodox education can be very positive or very negative. And it has contrary effects on different people. Well, let me explain. There are some people out there 
for whom their exposure to non-Orthodox Judaism was the death knell of any further involvement with Judaism. What they got was something that somehow, deep down, they recognized as non-authentic, not legitimate, not for them, not fulfilling spiritually, not answering their questions. And they said, if this is Judaism, I'm out of here. I can you know, uh, give you countless examples of, of, of people like that. Uh, then there are other people, uh, clearly so, for whom Reform Judaism, Conservative Judaism were stepping stones. Uh, were, there, there are definitely truths that are held in common by all of the denominations, often to their surprise of how many of these fundamental truths people really agree upon or sense or have somehow in their genes as Jews after the last 3,300 years. And those are often enough to, to get people started. Um, I, for one, greet with, with, with great enthusiasm the movement within Reform Judaism to explore tradition, which has uh, taken place over the, last, uh, over the last decade. One of the reasons I do is because I have seen myself people who through the changed attitude of Reform Judaism towards tradition, exploring observance and practice, got to a point where they said, hey, where's everybody else in this? <laughs> Who do I do this with? And where are the rules? And like, is, is there a better way to do it? And what's the meaning behind it? And does it really make sense for me to do it just because it's a traditional practice? Or is there some further spiritual connection? And by asking those questions, they wind up, let's say, upgrading, <laughs> sometimes sequentially. You know, I've, I've, met, I've met people who started literally at zero. That means not Jewish. And uh, did four steps of conversion. Four steps of conversion. Some, you know, uh, some, uh, one person uh, is a major writer today in the, in uh, the United States who uh, discovered that he was an adopted child and decided to convert himself, uh, literally, to do a conversion process upon himself. And then he, years later, he had a reform conversion and a conservative conversion and finally an orthodox conversion. Uh, there's no question that his exposure to parts of Judaism were, uh, were a stepping stone. So is it accurate to say that very few Orthodox rabbis will accept non-Orthodox conversions? I don't think that's accurate. Uh, I don't think there are any, <laughs> very few. Any Orthodox rabbi who would accept a non-Orthodox conversion couldn't be an Orthodox rabbi. It, uh, it's a contradiction in terms. Orthodoxy is a halachic discipline. It means that we believe not only that there are rules, but that there are protocols for discovering those rules, that those rules are God-given, unapologetically, at least many of them, the ones that are seen as dioraita, straight from the Torah, that there are agreed upon uh, uh, processes of understanding where the law derives from, how binding it is, of weighing and balancing, and that it's not up to a committee of scholars at the meeting at the Jewish Theological Seminary to decide that 
well, these laws are sort of antiquated and have gone by the wayside and they're not in the spirit of modern times. Uh, any conversion done by people who don't accept the real divinity of Torah cannot be a conversion according to, according to Jewish law, the Jewish law the way it's seen by, uh, by traditional Jews. Okay, so some other subjects in this documentary have had multiple conversions, progressive conversions. How does he view that? How do we look at, at the conversions of other movements that sometimes could serve as a stepping stone, uh, moving people to a higher place, eventually getting them to, uh, to plateau out at the, uh, at, the authentic, at the authentic version? And here, too, the answer is going to be, is, is going to be complex. As, an, as a traditional Jew, I don't believe in proselytizing. It's important for people to understand why Judaism doesn't believe in proselytizing. Here, I think all of the movements are actually in agreement with each other. We don't proselytize because we're the only major religion out there that didn't keep for ourselves the keys to the kingdom of heaven. We believe that it's not just Jews who have eternal life or eternal bliss or heaven or whatever you want to call it. Because that's true, there's no real need. There's no crying need to get to everybody on the planet and say, listen, before it's too late, you better jump on our bandwagon or you're going to be in for the next 10 million years of eternal damnation. That's not a Jewish concept. So we don't push for proselytizing. So if you tell me that there are lots of non-Jews who can get excited, interested in Judaism through some of the other movements, I have two responses. One, uh, we're not looking for that. It's really not part of the agenda. It never was. Two, the differences between Orthodox Judaism and the other denominations are so great that while it may be true that some people get some of the positive areas that are held in common, there are lots of people who get just the opposite, who get fed on a bunch of notions about Judaism that are actually inimical to growth in Judaism and speak the opposite of what traditional Judaism ever was. So that's no great progress at all. We celebrated Hanukkah the, uh, this last week. So I noted that um, George Bush at the White House in his talk about Hanukkah made reference to the cruise of oil burning eight days. Wolfgang Puck in his column in the LA Times talked about the oil burning for eight days. A conservative rabbi here in Los Angeles made a point of writing an op-ed piece in one of the local papers saying, well, you know, we don't really believe in that stuff anymore. That was rabbinic invention. It doesn't come straight from the, straight from the Torah. Yeah, of course. The, some of the notions that, that, are, that abound in the, in the heterodox world are, are the polar opposite of what Judaism was really about. We're sitting here in LA where a prominent conservative rabbi a couple of years ago took the first day of Passover to declare to his congregants, 85% of whom were traditional Persian Jews, not orthodox, not conservative, traditional, who kept alive a tradition for thousands of years by retelling this story at the Passover table, said, you know what? It may really not have happened. It doesn't matter so much, but it may really not have happened and invited the LA Times there to make sure that the press would get it right. Now, 
in many ways, in many ways, there is more of a sharing of, of common truth with Christian denominations than there is at times with the liberal Jewish denominations. So it's, it's a mixed bag. Some people get the positive, some people only get the negative. And you're right, for some people it is a way station to a discovery of the pot of gold at the end of the, of the rainbow. And in, in that case, fortuitously, the, fortuitously it's worked. Because it's true. On the one hand, we don't proselytize, but on the other hand, it is a mitzvah in the Torah to welcome non-Jews, and there hasn't been a generation like this since the height of the Roman world in which genuine converts by the droves have come into Orthodox Judaism, traditional Judaism, and assumed positions of leadership, and front and center participation in the, in the Jewish community. I, I live in, in the hood, <laughs> in the, 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 real, the real ghetto of LA. If we started counting heads of converts in my neighborhood, people would, would get lockjaw. That many? But in any shul, in every shul, there are, are people who were born non-Jewish, some involved with other religions, some involved with no religion, who today are paragons of, of, uh, of, Jewish, of Jewish life. Thank you to Rabbi Adlerstein. He was very open, direct, very, very powerful stuff. And we have three more segments with him. So come on back for that. And remember, visit our sponsor, Hazaka.com. That's H-A-Z-A-K-A-H. Hazaka.com, Jewish games that feed the brain. Thanks for listening. All right, that's it. Hot as hell, Jay.